I'm Nick Weiler. I'm Erica Senior. And I'm Jordan Sorokin. Welcome to Brains and Bourbon, the show about cocktails and neuroscience, brought to you by Neurite West and KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. Each week, we invite a neuroscientist, or today a, a lawyer, to discuss the process and motivation behind their science and to share their favorite cocktail with us. This week, our guest is Hank Greeley, professor of law at Stanford, chair of the California Advisory Committee on Human Stem Cell Research, director of the Stanford Law School Center for Law and the Biosciences, as well as the new Stanford Program in Neuroscience and Society, or SPINS. Thank you so much for joining us today, Hank. My pleasure. So, Hank, we usually have cocktails on the show, but uh, I believe today you decided to drink beer. Can you tell us what we're going to be having today? We're going to be having an IPA, an India Pale Ale. This particular IPA is called Hop Stupid, S-T-O-O-P-I-D, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I haven't had before, but I think I will have again in the future. It is a very hoppy IPA, is very it? fragrant, very bitter. I like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do like the bitterness in IPAs. I think they've got more flavor than most beers. I try to keep myself usually to beer and wine because it's a lot harder for me to get in trouble that way. <laughs> this is a this is an honest to god genuine strategy. Um, in my youth, uh, would occasionally drink too much, and it's a lot easier to drink too much when you're drinking hard liquor than Whiskey. when you're drinking uh, wine or beer. Mm-hmm. It, it can be done. But right. it's Tony harder. Ricci and I know that from experience on our previous show. <laughs> that, that happens. Yeah. So, what's your favorite IPA? I drink a lot of the Sierra Nevada Torpedo. Oh, okay. that's my favorite IPA. It's Look it's easily available. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'd say my favorite IPA is whichever one I'm drinking at the time. <laughs> <laughs> if you can't drink the yeah, one you love, so... love the one you drink. Well, <laughs> Recently, Hank, I keep seeing you cited in news stories as a bioethicist. Um, how did you go from being a law professor to being a bioethicist? So I don't think I did. I actually don't like to be called a bioethicist. I think I'm a law professor who works in bioethics. Mm-hmm. This is this is actually an honest-to-God real dispute among people who work in bioethics. Some want to be called bioethicists. They think bioethics is a field, is a discipline, is a, is a way of looking at the world. Some, like me, think that bioethics is an area mm. that you come into from different disciplines and that part of the value is you've got people from very different disciplines with very different perspectives talking about the same subject, but from different points of view. So Latin American studies is an area, and you've got historians and literature people and economists and political scientists and geographers. I think of bioethics that way. So I've given up trying to correct people or tell people for the most part, no, I'm not really a bioethicist. I'm just a law professor who works in bioethics. Mm -hmm. But that's the way I think of myself. How I got to it, kind of a long story. It goes back about almost 25 years now. Hmm. I was uh, a law professor here. I was hired here at Stanford in 1985 to teach oil and gas law. It's very bioethical. <laughs> really? <Okay>. Well, <laughs> some would think th- so. There's some bio in there someplace, <laughs> and there's some ethics, arguably. Uh, but along the way, I married a physician, and I started teaching health law. Uh, in 1991, Stanford was putting on a series of centennial symposia, actually right here at Memorial Auditorium, where the KZSU studio is located. Mm-hmm. And one of them was on the then-new Human Genome Project. Mm-hmm. The planning committee wanted somebody from the law school to be on the planning committee. I was the only one in the law school who could spell genome. <laughs> Maybe the only one who could spell DNA. You made the cut. <laughs> Certainly the only one who could spell deoxyribonucleic acid. Mm-hmm. So I got on the planning committee. I ended up giving a talk there. I really enjoyed it. 
Uh, and so I started doing genetics-related work. Uh, I continued to do health work. I decided to do to concentrate on health issues rather than energy law issues. I'd turned the oil and gas course into an energy law course. I concluded back in about 1991, 92, that I, I couldn't follow both. It was just too much, too different. And that if I stayed with energy law, the big issue would be global warming. Mm -hmm. And there was no way in hell we would have the political will to do anything meaningful about it. Mm -hmm. So I was going to switch to health where we were going to have the political will. There's going to be a Democratic president soon, and we would get universal health care. <laughs> so I was, I figure, a quarter right. I think, <laughs> unfortunately, I think I was right about the climate change, yeah. mm -hmm. and I yeah. was not immediately right about universal coverage. But you know, twenty or thirty years later, we're getting there. Yeah. Yeah. So started doing genetic stuff. The the crash and burn of the Clinton health plan made it clear that health policy wasn't going anywhere for a while, which turned out to be true. Mm -hmm. And the rise of the Human Genome Project, the ELSI program, Ethical, Legal, and Social Implications of Human Genetics in the Genome Project kind of sucked me into genetics. In 97, I started working on some cloning issues after Dolly's birth was announced. Mm -hmm. In 2002, I started working on neuroscience. So basically, I work on any intersection between biosciences and law, society, and ethics that I think is interesting. It's a you, great job. Yeah. It, I mean, the, the, the issues that come up are, are, are really fascinating. I mean, has it always been a, a question of ethics or a focus on ethics, or did it start out in other areas like regulation and so on? I mean, maybe it's always ethics. Yeah, I actually don't even think now it's ethics. I, mm -hmm. You notice the, our center at, at the law school is called the Center for Law and the Biosciences, SPINS is the program, uh, Stanford program in neuroscience and society. Mm -hmm. I think that ELSI turned out to be a pretty good acronym, ethical, legal, and social implications, because I think they're all there. Uh, I'm one of the co-editors-in-chief of a new journal called the Journal of Law and the Biosciences, and we try to make it clear we're interested in things that people think of as bioethics, but we're also interested in FDA regulation, in patent law, to the extent it affects bioscience. So. I actually, I mean, I started really on the regulatory side. My first piece of work ever in in this field, broadly uh, conceived, was about health insurance regulation or health insurance discrimination because of genetics, which drew on my knowledge of how the health coverage system worked and didn't work in the United States. So some of what I do, I think, is more bioethics direct but much of it is about law or about social issues, but it's all about how the science intersects with the society, mm -hmm. how the science affects the society, and to some extent, how the society affects the science. Is there a big gap there? It's a dance. <laughs> you know, they, they interact with each other like two dancers who don't know each other very well who aren't doing a dance with very fixed steps. <laughs> the society clearly affects what science has done in part because the society pays the bills. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's not a heck of a lot of gentlemen scientists anymore. You right. don't see Charles Darwin with an independent income right. doing cutting-edge science today. So society pays the bills. He who pays the piper calls the tune. Mm. At the same time, much of what science does has implications for society. And you know, the, the science moves ahead in one sense, in, in one area, and the society takes some time to react to it. Society begins to change and takes science some time to react to it. Uh, I think it is a, it's a complicated interaction between the two.
but well, always fascinating. Mm -hmm. Within the sciences, do you have a particular interest or do you, so like, for example, you said now you're interested in neuroscience, generally speaking, do you follow your own interests or do you follow the, what's kind of the hot topic, quote unquote? Well, you know, over the years, although my last bio class was in 10th grade, when we really didn't know how to spell DNA, <laughs> um, I have learned a lot of biology over the years, and that is kind of my area of expertise now. I don't think I know nearly as much as a working scientist in a field would, but I, you know, at this stage, I probably know as much genetics as a neuroscientist does, and as much neuroscience as a geneticist does, <laughs> in a sense. I, I, I have a fairly you know, 85, 90% degree of knowledge about genetics, neuroscience, stem cell research. Mm -hmm. And so I write mainly in those fields because that's what I know most about. Mm -hmm. I'm also really interested in some other areas of science. I'm fascinated by uh, cosmology. Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by plate tectonics and geology. My wife and I just came back from a seven-day road trip through uh, eastern Washington oh, looking yeah. at geology. Uh, and I'm fascinated by evolution uh, more broadly, although I don't end up having much chance to write about evolution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I like, a, I like a lot of things, but uh, I write about bioscience, mainly about genetics, neuroscience, stem cells, also to some extent about research ethics issues that cut across all the sciences, so things involving human subjects research. Mm -hmm. So your interest in genetics and human science research, you've expressed concern with genetic testing. I don't know if you can say a few words on that. Generally speaking, maybe we can dive into that subject. Sure. Although, um, you know, my view is genetic testing, like any human technology, can be done well and can be done poorly, mm -hmm. can do good and can do harm. Uh, we need to try to not ban it, but to try to make sure that it's done in ways that that maximize the chances of good coming out of it and minimize the chances of harm coming from it. So I've got two significant concerns about genetic testing. One is that people will use it without understanding the limitations of what it says. Mm -hmm. I think the general population tends to think genes are magic and they're all powerful. Mm -hmm. And that genetic means there is no way this thing could possibly be avoided or changed. Genetics means mm -hmm. fate. Mm -hmm. It does if you've got, say, the allele that causes Huntington disease. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The only way you won't die from Huntington's, Huntington disease is to die first from something else. But for most of genetics, it's an influence. It plays a role. And then there are other areas. I mean, we are all genetically programmed to be able to learn a language. Mm -hmm. But our genes don't care what language, mm -hmm. whether we're learning Russian or Chinese or English or Aztec, Nahuatl. The genes don't matter. So... Mm -hmm. I think that, that people tend to read too much power into genes, and that's true not just of patients and of general consumers, general, the general population, but also to some extent of physicians and even scientists. So I worry about that. One of the things that leads me to worry about is direct-to-consumer genetic testing, like that done by 23andMe. Mm -hmm. 23andMe has actually been around since 2006, 2007. It's okay. a privately held company, substantial funding, and some leadership from Google. Mm -hmm. uh, but funding from other groups as well that until last November, you would send them your credit card number. They would <laughs> charge you 99 bucks. Okay. They would send you a tube into which you would spit. Actually, a significant amount of spit to it. It's pretty it takes challenging. Some time, yeah. 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 Uh, you'd send the spit off, and they would send you back a link 
and you could see the results with respect to something like 245 disease risks or other traits. Mm -hmm. Some of these were just, you know, entertainment. Do you have the genes for wet earwax or dry earwax? Mm -hmm. Do you even know what the difference is between wet and dry <laughs> earwax? I don't think most of us do because all we know is the earwax we have. Mm -hmm. Normal uh, earwax. Yeah, <laughs> right. My earwax. My earwax. Good earwax. <laughs> Uh, but they would also give you information about your risk of a variety of diseases. Last November, the FDA shut down that health part of it, saying, you guys are running a medical device without our permission. And by the way, we're also annoyed that for six months, you have been ignoring all our emails, letters, mm -hmm. and phone calls. Mm -hmm. So they continued to provide the service for ancestry purposes, telling you roughly what percentage European your ancestry is, what percentage African, Sub-Saharan African, Native American, et cetera. And Neanderthal, actually. And, and Neanderthal, Neanderthal <laughs> which for all of us except those of l largely or entirely Sub-Saharan African ancestry is going to be between about 2 and 3%. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If they're right, there's some questions about whether their mm -hmm. approach is actually right. Mm -hmm. So they'll tell you that. They don't tell you the health information anymore. But I'm, do they, I, do they I, have it? That's the bigger... Well, they, they do. Right. They can. In fact, they will let you download your raw data. What they're That's using is, is something called a SNP chip, a single nucleotide polymorphism chip. It's a, it's a slightly customized variant off of a standard, I think, Illumina chip with about a million SNPs on it. So those are basically just individual differences right. in DNA that map onto some genetic factors? Well, they are single nucleotide polymorphisms, so individual bases, A's, C's, G's, and T's, which say 60% of the population has a C here, mm -hmm. but 40% has a T. And those have been correlated, many, but not all of them, have been correlated with, in some studies, with different levels of risk of having a particular disease or having a particular trait. Mm -hmm. Most of them, I think, actually haven't been correlated with anything at this point. Mm -hmm. I am happy that the FDA did what it did for two reasons. The one that gets the most attention is the direct consumer side of it. They don't have you go through a doctor or a genetic counselor. There's not necessarily any professional intermediary helping to explain to you what this means. They do have a very good website that I think does a nice job if people read it yeah. and if they pay attention to it. So on this direct to consumer or DTC side, what worries me most, it the FDA's letter, I thought, unfortunately, had the example of somebody who tests positive for BRCA1 mutation, mutation associated with breast and ovarian cancer in women, and who then decides to get a prophylactic mastectomy. Um, I don't think that's very likely. We still have to see a doctor follow for this, right? Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and even surgeons are likely to want a little more evidence than <laughs> right. just a 23andMe assessment. Uh, what worries me more is the woman who tests negative and says, oh, great. I don't have right. to get mammograms right. anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, if you have a pathogenic mutation of BRCA1, your risk of getting breast cancer as an American woman goes from the roughly 12% population level to somewhere around 80%. If you're an average American woman who doesn't have the mutation, your risk goes from 12% to about 11.96%. So deciding not to get a mammogram could be a fatal mistake. Mm -hmm. And I worry that without a trained professional there to say, hey, you know, this doesn't mean you can't get, you know, you should stop getting mammograms, that people will make those mistakes. So the DTC part of it bothers me. The part that actually bothers me more, that has gotten less attention, but I think is more important, 
is most of the findings they had were of really, really unclear accuracy. Yeah. The, the SNP chip associations based on so-called GWAS, genome-wide association studies, mm-hmm. most of them are based on one study. If you've got more than one study, you typically get completely divergent results. Back in 2010, two different groups in the days when there were three major companies doing direct-to-consumer genomics, the other two have left the field. They sent the same samples to three companies. And they checked to see their analytic validity, how well they called the SNPs, the actual DNA, and their clinical validity, how well they agreed on what it meant. The companies were great on analytic validity, like 99.9% identical, concordant in what they called. But on meaning, when they grouped something like 20 diseases into above average, average, and below average risk, a third of the time the three companies agreed. A third of the time one company said, a sample was above average risk, while another company said the same sample was below average risk. Mm -hmm. So there are a few things, like the BRCA1 testing they do, the APOE4 testing, which Mm -hmm. related to Alzheimer's, a a particular SNP that seems to be powerfully related to a rare inherited form of Parkinson's disease. Those are clinically valid, I think, Mm -hmm. but that's a handful out of their 245. So Yeah, I have problems with that kind of genetic testing because I think it's selling a product that's not very good and doing it in a way that doesn't require any skilled person to tell the consumer, you know, this isn't all that good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I've done the 23andMe genetic testing as well. And what I do like about that service, though, is that they let you, so they have like a star system. So basically the one star is like there's, you know, one paper. They try to inform the consumer how much support there is for this correlation between the SNP and whatever disorder. But then like you were saying, too, um, you know, they have multiple genes that have been associated with some feature, obesity or heart disease or something like that. And then if you look at your own data, like one paper is, okay, you have above average risk for getting um, heart disease, and the next one is you have below average risk for getting heart disease. And so I think it can get really complicated. Right. Um, so, But do you think there is a way that this service can be done in a in a meaningful way? Yes and no. So I think using SNP chips, you can do a few things in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. But the good news about SNP chips is most of the information is really weak, and the bad news is most of the information is really weak. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the bad news. The good news is you really don't have to worry too much about it because mm-hmm. it doesn't mean very much. This, right. These SNP chips, their associations, not even necessarily with genes, but just with genomic <laughs> regions, a very high relative risk would be 1.5, which is you know 50% higher than the average risk. If the average risk of something, I think one of the highest things 23andMe has had is Crohn's disease, a gastrointestinal disorder. Mm-hmm. If you hit the wrong set of SNPs, they say you've got four times the average risk. The average risk is 0.7%. So that takes you all the way to 2.8%. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not going to change your life. Are they transparent about those numbers? Yes, they're actually pretty good about relative risk versus absolute risk if somebody reads it and pays attention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think they're malpracticing. I don't think they're being intentionally... Um, Misleading. Misleading, exactly. But I think they are true believers in a way that is worrisome. And I think it's they're basically captives of their technology. SNP chips are cheap and easy and accurate, analytically valid. 
but they don't tell you very much information that is worthwhile. Mm -hmm. And that's not, I think, going to change. I don't think SNP chips are ever going to be very good for much. Among the other problems is many of these things, different studies correlate more than one SNP, but it's almost never combinations of more than one SNP because your power gets really, really low. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at seven SNPs and each one of them, one particular direction, puts you at higher risk, well, how do you combine those risks? Is it an additive model? Is it a multiplicative model? Mm -hmm. Is it a canceling out model? There's no real way to know unless you get millions, if not billions of people and That's do the study. Right. I think the SNP chip approach, I don't think they can go very far. Mm -hmm. And I think they probably, I think they realize that as well. The answer will be whole genome sequencing. They've already done a beta test last year of whole exome sequencing. Whole exome sequencing looks at the exome, the exons of your genes, so roughly 2% of your DNA that tells your body what proteins to make or how to make, how to assemble proteins. Whole genome sequencing looks at all 6.8 billion A's, C's, G's, and T's in your genome. The first whole genome sequence was published in 2003, more mm -hmm. or less, and cost half a billion dollars, mm -hmm. more or less. Now you can get one down the street in Mountain View for three grand. And two companies have announced the $1,000 genome. Uh, I don't actually believe either of them quite. Illumina has announced the $1,000 genome. It costs you $1,000 if you spend $60 million buying their equipment. Uh -huh. So it's $1,000 for the, for the reagents and the actual <laughs> test. But, but it's coming. And I think at that point, once you've got whole genome sequence, there are a lot of things we know about. Mm -hmm. There are 4,000 autosomal recessive disorders that we have a pretty good idea of. And we've got things like BRCA and Lynch syndrome and a bunch of other stuff. But once you've got sequence data, you can actually see the ACs, Gs, and Ts much more powerful than the associations you get with SNP chips. So I think there will be a move to whole genome sequencing. We're already seeing it used clinically to some extent today. Mm -hmm. I hope that when it gets to consumers, it won't be in a direct-to-consumer context mm -hmm. because, well, I can give you a, a story. About 2010, an amazingly creative Stanford scientist and engineer, Steve Quake, sequenced himself. He makes sequencing machines. He sequenced himself for $48,000. That counted his postdoc and grad student's time at zero, which is a little bit of an underestimate, <laughs> but... But 48,000, you know, from 2003, half a billion to 2009 when he did this, 48,000 was quite an improvement. Yeah. Um, along with a, a bunch of other people led by Ewan Ashley, uh, a genetic cardiologist here at Stanford. It's part of a group that looked for the medical significance of Steve's genome. And we found roughly 100 things we thought he should be told about. Steve's a really smart guy, trained in math and physics, not in bio, but he's learned a lot of bio. We figured, okay, 100 things. For Steve, three minutes a thing. That's five hours. Mm -hmm. How do you convey that information to real people? I don't think you do it solely through a website. Yeah. So I think whole genome sequencing, the clinical use of whole genome sequencing is coming. It's already here to some extent. It's mass use is coming. I think we can do it in a way that improves the human condition, that relieves human suffering. I also think we can do it in a way that screws things up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not anti-technology. I'm anti-poorly thought out, poorly implemented uses of technology. Yeah. 
It seems like once we get past the issue, I mean, if, if whole genome sequencing becomes possible for companies um, to do, I mean, I see what you're saying about the dangers of people misinterpreting their their results or having, you know, not having time or not having the understanding. But at least for me, as someone who does know some biology, one of the things that was so exciting about doing the 23andMe test was how it, it seemed like a great tool for teaching, in a sense, for being, for making people more literate about it. And I, I mean, I think it seems to me that there's something to the argument that our genes are, are ours, you know, they're part of our biology and, and for there to be a gatekeeper about to to say whether or not we we get it you know to to chance, look at our own theater. yeah yeah yeah, I mean, yeah I mean, it, that seems problematic to I, me I think there is something to that but I think it goes to a deep divide between sort of a libertarian and a and a paternalistic view of the world mm. the U S is one of the world's more libertarian countries not necessarily in a political libertarian sense, but in terms of our sense that anything that's not forbidden should be allowed. <laughs> and you shouldn't forbid anything unless there's a good reason for it, as opposed to anything that's not expressly allowed is forbidden. Uh, we are largely libertarian. You can put a new product on the market in most fields without getting anybody's permission. That actually isn't quite as true as it might sound. You can't put a new car on the market. You can't put a new processed food on the market without getting somebody to say or... that this is safe. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, like software, you can put anything you want. And, and you have to worry get, about getting sued, but you don't have to get permission in advance. The biggest exception to that in our society is health. I'm not a genetic exceptionalist. I'm a health exceptionalist. I think people will often make bad decisions about their health because it's technical. They don't understand it very well. It's something they care about a lot in ways that engage conflicting emotions. They're often making the decisions at times when they're hurt or scared or in pain. And, you know, most of us aren't very good with statistics. Otherwise, the lottery wouldn't exist. <laughs> but or it gambling. does. Uh, you know, or, you know, well, most gambling. Yeah. There are a few games of skill, of yeah. actual skill. Um, so I, we require that drugs and medical devices be proven in advance to be safe and effective. We require that doctors go through extensive, crazy training before they can practice medicine. There is some leakage at the edge there. We require basically nothing for people to make fortunes selling stupid and useless nutritional supplements, for mm -hmm. example. You can be a faith healer or a, a variety of alternative healers without having to get a license. But in general, when it comes to health, we want to know that it's, it's safe and effective and that you, the practitioner, are relatively safe and effective. And I don't see the genes as being any different. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to get an MRI scan of your brain, you would probably just go to a friendly researcher and volunteer as a subject. But for most of us, the only way to do that is to get a doctor to order it. And I think that actually makes a lot of sense because you look at your brain and you don't know what you're seeing and you don't have a doctor looking at it and you'll see a lot of things that are weird. Mm -hmm. In fact, mm -hmm. even if you do have a doctor looking at it, mm -hmm. even for people at the incredibly young age of the three of you, about 25% of people in their 20s, when you do a brain MRI, you see an abnormality. By the time you get to 50s and 60s, it's about half of us. Happily, oh. almost none of those abnormalities are clinically worrisome, mm -hmm. but you know, half of a percent, 1% of them are. So I think that in the area of health, we should give stronger power to the paternalistic perspective than we should in other areas. 
not complete power. I think for me, uh, and I think frankly for our society, genetics is sufficiently complicated, sufficiently important, sufficiently misunderstood, sufficiently necessarily tied to statistical understanding, that I want people to get that information through somebody who can actually help them understand it. You might be able to understand it on your own, but we make regulations not for the 100,000 people in the country who can handle it on their own, but for the 310 million people who can't. Mm -hmm. Mm. That's fair. So if we do get to the point where whole genome sequencing becomes a norm where it's, you know, you can go to your doctor's office and order it or whatever. Um, so as a scientist who's interested in, you know, neurological diseases, that gets me really excited because now you're opening up potentially a huge sample size. Now you have not 100 people in your sample. Now you have 300 million people in your sample. So what would be the ethical con considerations of having the whole genome and that person's medical history, of course, de-identified and then handing over that information to researchers to use and study? So I want you to affirm that I did not plant that question with you. <laughs> you did not. Uh, I'm it's actually, not even on our script. <laughs> I'm actually working on a project this summer with support from the Greenwall Foundation on just that question. Uh -huh. And I think it's the combination of electronic medical records and whole genome sequence or, or broad genome sequence, even whole exome sequence would be enough, will present an irresistible target for researchers. Mm -hmm. uh, Kaiser Northern California has a 3.5 million members. They've got a really pretty functional electronic health record with a lot of information about people. Mm -hmm. If in, say, 10 years, 2 million of those people or 3 million of those people have whole genome sequence in that database, the desire to go on fishing expeditions mm -hmm. to do in silico genetic research will be overwhelming, will be, I think, irresistible in a literal sense that I do not think it will be resisted. Mm -hmm. But I'm a Kaiser patient. I'm happy to be a Kaiser patient. I volunteered to be a Kaiser patient. My employer pays the money. They take care of me. I didn't volunteer to be a research subject. Right. So I think there'll be really tough and interesting and important questions about what kinds of rights patients have. Right now, the law and the general practice is largely on the side of, well, if it's de-identified, if you can't figure out who the person is, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But I don't believe that. I think that's wrong at two levels. One is, you know, even if I, nobody can tell that it's my DNA, if I know that my DNA might have been used for research in, say, race intelligence and genes by some notorious racist, mm -hmm. I'd be pissed off. Mm -hmm. Or into genetics of alcoholism in the Irish when it was done <laughs> by an English professor, <laughs> I'd be pissed off. Uh -huh. And I'd feel cheated, betrayed, lied to, right. misused. And that's a bad thing. It's bad yeah. that I feel that way. And it's bad for science in the long run if I feel that way because it makes me less likely to support science. So there are things you can feel bad about even if you're unidentified. Yeah. More importantly for some people, de-identification is increasingly a myth, especially if you've got access to a medical record. Mm -hmm. So if I know from your medical record your age, your place of birth, your date of birth, where you live, your height, your weight, all of your medical conditions, I can almost certainly figure out who you are. Mm -hmm. Right now, 
Um, I was born on June 25th, 1952 in Columbus, Ohio. I should go back someday next time I'm in Columbus and check, but my guess is from the demographics of the time, there were probably eight kids born that day in Franklin County, of mm -hmm. which Columbus is the seat. Public records, who was born on what day, what their names were. Probably four of those kids were girls and four were boys. And of the four boys, probably three were white and one were black. One was black. So with very little data about me, place, date of, place of birth, date of birth, sex, and race, you're down to three people in the world I could be. Mm -hmm. And one of them is actually my cousin Mike. We were born on the same day. <laughs> we were the very first grandchildren. I was born at 1 in the morning. He was born at 10 at night. <laughs> For 10 years, I lorded it over him that I was older than he was. For the last 30 years, he's lorded it over me that I'm older than he is. <laughs> my, my cousin Mike, good guy. He's 5'8", 160 pounds. As your radio listeners may not know, but you know, I am not 5'8", 160 pounds. I'm tall and wide and look very different. So it doesn't take a whole heck of a lot of information to identify people. The richer the data set, the more useful it is for research. Mm -hmm. but also the more easy re-identification becomes. So de-identification and an anon anonymization, it's a comforting myth, mm -hmm. but it's a myth. But mm -hmm. you could still get informed consent, though. I mean, even if you... You could. So I mean, that would be a realistic but, thing. Well, the, no. the, the question is, would it be realistic? <laughs> yeah. So how much time and effort would it take you to get informed consent from 3.5 million members of the Kaiser Permanente Healthcare System in Northern California? Yeah. A lot. Yeah. This is also very relevant to that recent Facebook. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard oh, about right, the, the emotion, they manipulated like the emotions of yeah. people. And I mean, technically, they didn't do anything illegal because on their contract, when you say I accept the terms and conditions, it's on there that you can be used as a potential test subject. But who reads through those things? So right. we'll see if technically they didn't do anything illegal, but certainly plausibly they didn't do anything illegal. Right. Uh -huh. I think right. they've got a pretty good case that they didn't do anything illegal. Although the researcher from Cornell and there were two two researchers from academic institutions, they're on a little bit shakier ground because they've got obligations through their university to IRBs that Facebook doesn't. Mm -hmm. I think they're probably okay, but I'm not sure. So you, why is why is what they did different from what they normally do, which is put adverts and other things that they stick into your feed to try to get you to to buy something? So. That's a good question, and it's one that's prompted a lot of debate. My answer isn't deeply satisfying to me, but the, my answer is because this wasn't being done for internal corporate money-making purposes. This was being published as research, mm -hmm. and we treat things differently when they are published as research than when they aren't. Maybe we shouldn't. Uh, we do. I think there's some advantages, particularly to the research community, for subjects, potential subjects to know that researchers hold themselves to higher standards than those of Facebook yeah. or General Motors or McDonald's. One can make the argument there shouldn't be a difference. If you buy that, then the question becomes, should Facebook have to get informed consent from any, everybody or mm -hmm. should nobody have to get informed consent? But the problem is getting real informed consent is time-consuming, expensive, and it doesn't always work. Mm -hmm. But standard operating procedure now if it's, quote, de-identified, close quote, mm -hmm. you ain't got no rights. Yeah, I mean, having having just read The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, I mean, this is an issue that has been on my mind of, you know, who owns your DNA sequence? I mean, is it the person who measures it, or is it you as the person who it represents? So the answer under American law is we don't know. Mm -hmm. In part because the law is 
both in the U.S. and other common law countries, has been really reluctant to talk about human tissues, human things as property. Um, even corpses, corpses aren't property. In some states, they're, quote, quasi-property, close quote, because they won't bring themselves to talk about them as property. Mm -hmm. I actually think it would be useful to talk about ownership, but it would be more useful to break down ownership into who's got what rights over what. Mm -hmm. So no question, when your DNA is in your body, you have the rights to control it. Uh -huh. Once it leaves your body, it gets trickier. But I don't think ownership doesn't necessarily give us the right framework. So if you have, say, a beer bottle, you bought the bottle, you drank the beer, you enjoyed it, you put the bottle in recycling. You put it out on your curb. Somebody came by and took the bottle off. Who owns the bottle? The person who took it off. Right. Although there are a few states that have special recycling laws. You put it in your trash on the curb. You've abandoned it. Well, you put DNA on that bottle if you drank straight from the bottle. Who owns your DNA on the bottle? Hmm. Under a straight legal property theory, you would have abandoned the DNA too. But I don't think that should be the right answer. So I, I think we do need to have... a an important conversation about rights in human body parts, human DNA, human data, human health and DNA-related data, fMRI data mm -hmm. or MRI data, uh, brain scans. I think property isn't necessarily the best way to think about it. I think for DNA and other human tissues, I think we'd be better off not thinking about it as property but thinking about it as rights. So what about the relationship that a parent has towards their child? I mean, you don't own the child, but you have that type of relationship. Like, what is that legal relationship? And could that same sort of relationship be applied to some of these data or other body materials? Complicated. I think we'd be better off thinking about it fresh. So the, the parent-child relationship is an interesting one. A parent has what we call a fiduciary duty to the child. The parent's duty is to act in the child's best interest. Mm -hmm. If the child earns money, the child actually owns that money. The parent gets the right to manage it because the child is presumed to be incompetent to manage it. But the parent has to manage it for the child's interests, not uh -huh. for the parent's interest. And there are some cases, particularly with child actors, where the parents wasted all the money and the kids mm -hmm. were subsequently able to sue them and sue the parents' advisors who actually still had money, unlike mm -hmm. the parents, and get some relief. Now, Fiduciary obligation is a concept that could make some sense in the research context, but there you'd be saying, I think, the researcher has a fiduciary obligation to the subject, to mm -hmm. the research subject, to do things that are in the subject's interest and not things that aren't. I think that's kind of an attractive model. A lot of researchers and, more importantly, a lot of lawyers for research institutions would not like that uh -huh. because it means that places like Stanford could be successfully sued more often. Mm. And my brothers and sisters in the law are very keen on minimizing the number of times their clients can be successfully sued. So I think there are a lot of potential solutions out there. The big problem right now is the vast mass of people who are affected don't know, and because they don't know, don't care. Mm -hmm. And so there's no real counterbalancing interest. Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting that you that you compared the the genomics to stuff like fMRI, where it's also, it's a matter of information, you know, it's not, it's not that someone is stealing my brain. Someone has, may have the ability to look through my skull and get information about right. me. And so how, right. how we control that privacy and that information is really the key. But, but you know, for the most part, your DNA is 
not important unless it's analyzed. I could take your DNA as long as I didn't analyze it. There's almost nothing useful I could do with it. Mm -hmm. a bit of an exception there in theory. Maybe I could use that to try to clone you if I had a viable <laughs> cell, et cetera, which you couldn't do with MRI data. But for the most part, DNA is only useful if it's analyzed. So really, it is data. What the physical DNA means is as long as somebody has that, they have the possibility of analyzing it. Again, with this little exception of making stem cells, doing cloning, other kinds of things, at least if there are whole cells in the DNA, maybe using it as a template to synthesize your DNA, et cetera. MRI is, I think, a nice example that's purely data. I don't get any of your brain when I do an MRI of your skull, uh, an MRI of your head, but I do get information about you. And it's information that you might want to control who has it and what they mm -hmm. can do with it. Mm -hmm. Actually, my understanding is brain MRIs are, are like DNA, only better in terms of being individually unique, that no two brain MRIs actually look the same. If you look in enough detail, you can distinguish from one person to another. With DNA, identical twins have the same DNA, mm -hmm. but they don't have the same brains. So in a sense, it's even more unique and more individual than DNA is. Mm -hmm. The difference being that right now, you know, on a scale of one to 100, I figure we know about 25 or 30 of what we can figure out from DNA, maybe 50. It's, it's unclear how much farther we'll get we're not nearly as far as most lay people think we are and as most right. geneticists 10 years ago hoped we would be. It's been the great disappointment of the last 10 or 15 years has been the inability to find genetic associations that we think have to be there, mm -hmm. the missing heritability. From concordance studies, we know that something like schizophrenia has to have a huge genetic component, but we can't find it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So my point is, with genetics, let's say we know 25% or 30% of what we can eventually know. With neuroscience, human neuroscience, yeah. I'd say we're under 1%. Yeah. 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 You, right. If I get your brain MRI, I can see whether you've got a tumor <laughs> or an aneurysm. You can tell if you have a brain or not. Yeah. That's about it. <laughs> you've got Homer, a little homunculus of Homer Simpson sitting inside your cell. <laughs> I've had that picture in my head for the past five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's very little we can say about yeah. somebody from looking at their brain MRI. Yeah. Mm. Well, actually, one of the things we wanted to ask you about is, is about the work that you've done on fMRI and mind reading. Yeah. It's something that you have written a lot about and talked a lot about. There have been studies that people are able to tell what movie you're watching right. by the, looking at the fMRI yeah. if they know you're watching one of a hundred movies or something like that. But getting to something like uh, you've t written about lie detection, that's something that's very complicated. Mm -hmm. So I think the mind reading stuff is interesting. In some areas, I think we actually are pretty far advanced. It's, it falls into that 1% of what we can actually tell. So if I tell you to think about, to prepare to move your left hand or your right hand, but not tell me which one, I should be able to figure it out mm -hmm. by looking at an fMRI. Right. Jack Gallant at Berkeley has yeah. done this amazing work on movies, but also on reconstructing scenes people see. And in the visual system, we're getting non-trivially good at being able to tell what somebody's seeing. Or in some old work now, almost 15 years old, from Nancy Canwisher, about what they're thinking about, what they're visualizing in their mind's eye. She was able to tell with about 80% accuracy whether somebody was thinking about a place or a face mm -hmm. based on fMRI and the fusiform face uh, region and so on. So in some places, I think we are 
decently good at mind reading. Lie detection, I think, is a long way off. Well, we need a lot more studies and different studies to convince me. There are over 30 peer-reviewed studies finding statistically significant and even actually substantial correlations between particular fMRI patterns and deception. Mm-hmm. The problem is their deception is almost always undergrad psych students doing what they are told. Right. And what that has to do with the real world is unclear. So they lie in the scanner and someone says lie about this? Right. So are you, is it, you know, does your brain yeah. do the same thing when you're following orders to, to say, no, I don't see the eight of spades, as when you're saying, no, I didn't try to buy cocaine from that undercover officer. Right. Or you're saying, no, mom, the turkey wasn't too dry. It was perfect. <laughs> and, and maybe it is, but maybe it isn't. We don't know. There, there are yeah. a number of other problems with the lie detection as well, but I think the, eco- the lack of ecological realism. I'm agnostic about whether we'll get any decent lie detection within a decade. I think we might. But I also think we might not. I do think, though, that, that there are some areas that are more promising, so pain detection. There are people who think they see patterns of fMRI activation when people feel pain and don't see them when they don't. That, to me, makes more sense than lie detection. I think the subjective feeling of pain is likely to be more instantiated in the brain. It's a law, you know, it's a very evolutionarily old thing. And it's not saying that you should feel the pain. It's mm-hmm. just looking for that subjective ouch. You know, you ask a question to a lawyer, the first two words of the lawyer's answer to any question should always be, it depends. <laughs> and I think with, with mind reading and uh, neuroimaging, it depends. Some of it, I think, is likely to happen, some of it very unlikely to happen, some of it in in between. You know, I'd bet that in a few years we can determine with a high degree of accuracy whether or not you're hungry, Mm -hmm. maybe even whether you'd prefer a burger or tofu. Yeah. But I doubt we can figure out all the ingredients you want on the burger and how well you want it cooked and things like that. It's one of those problems where the easier it is, the less interesting it is in a lot of cases. One of the interesting pain studies goes back over a decade. It was published in Science. They rigged up something with people in scanners so that they were supposedly playing a game with two others who started ignoring them. Of course, mm-hmm. it was all computer-generated. But mm-hmm. some of the subjects reported feeling hurt, that they were being shunned and ignored and, and that they were hurt by this. And sure enough, their brains showed what those researchers at least were looking for in terms of the pain signal. So we think of emotional pain and physical pain as different. Well, maybe your brain doesn't think they're different. Maybe mm-hmm. they are the same in your brain. And I actually think that's one of the most interesting things that we should be learning from neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, when you get, like, really heartbroken over something, like, you feel it in your chest. It, like, you get punched in the gut. Or as the British say, you feel gutted, which I think is a great a great term. <laughs> or gobsmacked. Or you know gobsmacked. What, you know what gobsmacked means? Uh-uh. Hit in the mouth. <laughs> and also, I mean, is it worth pushing all this with lie detection in terms of the actual cost of implementing these tests. I mean, fMRI is not a trivial amount of money that costs quite a bit to run. Do we have the space and the money to perform these tests on It depends. People? You're right, yeah. I mean, if the tests are useless, <laughs> depends if, we come if the tests are useless, then no. If the tests are pretty good and you've got 10 suspects in a terrorist plot to explode sure. a dirty bomb in San Francisco, sure. Well, that might change the equation. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, it it really depends on the circumstances, both on the potential accuracy, the costs, and the potential benefits. Mm-hmm. You get beyond that, when does it become okay to do it without somebody's consent? That's a tougher issue and one that I think 
if we ever get to that setting, uh, we'll have to deal with. We do have a Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. I think would probably be held to apply to lie detection, but it can be circumvented. If the prosecutor says, I hereby promise in writing I'm not going to prosecute you for any crimes I learn of from this examination, your Fifth Amendment privilege goes away and you can be forced to talk. Except you can't really be forced to talk. In the American system, you can be thrown in jail until you talk. That happens. People can be held in contempt. But nobody can force you to talk. Even waterboarding doesn't necessarily force you to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. And that, despite the Bush administration, is not yet legal, at least in the United States. But if you had a lie detector that was pretty accurate, particularly if it's one that doesn't require you to say anything but just watches your mental reaction or your brain reaction to images or sounds, you could effectively be forced to reveal mm -hmm. yourself. Uh, mm -hmm. What's the constitutionality of that? Should we allow it to be used but only with a search warrant? Think about getting a search warrant for your head, maybe. Should parents be allowed to use it on their kids? Should people be allowed to use it on folks who can't talk in order to see what they want? One of the really interesting things going on with fMRI work, this work being done by Stephen Lorries and Adrian Owen doing fMRI of people diagnosed as in a persistent vegetative state or a minimally conscious state. Mm -hmm. And finding that some few of them actually show brain reactions that appear to indicate consciousness. The best example, their classic story, the guy had been diagnosed as in a persistent vegetative state for over five years, completely unresponsive at the bedside. Nobody could get anything from him. And these guys are the world's best, by the way, at finding misdiagnosed, minimally conscious state that's diagnosed as pers persistent vegetative. So if they say he's persistent vegetative, I believe them. They put him in a scanner. They ask him questions. First, they ask him, think about playing tennis. You're playing tennis. You hit the ball back over the net. It comes back. You hit it back over the net. And they look to see if there was activation in his secondary motor area, which you would expect. Right. And there was. Mm -hmm. Planning the movements. Yep. Of, you know. Then he said. Uh, then they said, so you think about walking to your house. You walk in through the front door. You walk into the hallway. You walk into the kitchen. And they looked for uh, activation in the parahippocampal gyrus, mm -hmm. which has been associated with navigation kinds of tasks. Right. And again, they found them with this guy. Now, that doesn't mean he was conscious because maybe, you know, I think my sleeping brain knows the difference between a baby crying and a siren. Mm -hmm. I think something's going on even though I may not be conscious. Maybe not, but it's, it's not powerful evidence that he's, he was conscious. Then they said, was your father's name Alexander? If the answer is yes, think about playing tennis. If the answer is no, think about walking through your house. Hmm. Do you have any brothers? If the answer is yes, think about walking through your house. If the answer is no, think about playing tennis. They ask him seven yes nor no questions. He got the first six right. They didn't find an answer on the seventh. Was it because it was ambiguous? Was it because he wasn't sure? Was he bored? Did he fall asleep? Did he lose consciousness? Nobody knows. But that's kind of a powerful thing now. Yeah, that's very powerful. Nobody asked him to volunteer to have his brain scanned to see if he could communicate. But that's, mm -hmm. a, that's a use of mind reading where I think you probably don't need the consent of the subject mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. as opposed to uh, the cops in the station house who I think probably should. Mm -hmm. So another really interesting way that neuroscience interacts with law is it's, it changes our perception of personal responsibility and sort of what legal issues are raised when people say, okay, my brain made me do it. So, for example, in 2011, you wrote an article on the Law and Biosciences blog 
about this case from Italy about a woman who had been convicted of murdering her sister and attempting to murder her parents, but had her sentence reduced because of her defense attorneys pointed to a brain abnormality as evidence of partial mental illness. Can you talk a little bit about this case more? Sure. I love Italy and I hate that case. (laughs) (laughs) I I think it was a terrible case. And I actually think neuroscience has less to tell us about responsibility than many neuroscientists and some philosophers think. Uh Yes, my brain made me do it. But my brain always made me do it. Yeah, exactly. Everything I do, my brain made me do. And right. if if you are, as I think almost all neuroscientists are, and, and I am, kind of deterministic about the brain, what my, my brain creates, my conscious mind, it's the physical organ that creates this non-physical entity we think of as mind. I think it's tricky, not impossible, but it's tricky to be a neuroscientist and believe in free will. Yeah. Requires yeah, some I would say clever free, definitions about free will. I would <laughs> say free from what? You know, right. like you're not free from biology. Right. And you're not free from your brain because right. I I'm not a genetic essentialist. I think I am a brain essentialist. I think for the most part I am my brain. Yeah. I like the rest of my body. It's been useful to me. <laughs> it plays important roles in maintaining my brain. But if we did a brain transplant. My brain went into your body and your brain went into my body. I would not think, oh, my body just got a new brain. I would think, oh, my brain just got a new body. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think in that sense, to talk about my brain made me do it is kind of silly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, we do have situations where, and I don't think this is medical or scientific. I think it comes from a gut sense of fairness. We just don't think it's fair or just to hold somebody responsible. And the insanity defense comes from this. You know, the woman who drowned her children because Satan had been telling her that otherwise he would damn them forever and only by drowning them could she save them from eternal damnation, Uh who was crazy as a jaybird, as the old saying goes. You wouldn't really want to treat her as a murderer. That wouldn't feel right. Or somebody who ended the delusion that you were a rampaging elephant Mm-hmm. shot you and killed you. You might not want them out on the street. You certainly wouldn't want them to have a gun. But um, punishing them for murder seems a little wrong. If I could be convinced that somebody had some kind of brain abnormality that really made it impossible for them to act in the kind of way that would make us feel fair about punishing them, like you know, somebody who has an epileptic seizure and crashes his car and kills people, if it's the first seizure, I don't see how you can hold him responsible. Right. If it's the second seizure and he's not taking his meds, you sure as hell can hold him responsible. Mm-hmm. Right. So the the best example of this in a way, and, and it, I think it's a good example because it shows some of the ambiguities, is a real case from Virginia from about 12 years ago. A 40-year-old man, high school teacher, led a normal life. He was on his second marriage, but not all that unusual. Began to start getting interested in pornography. and Began to collect porn online, watch it and then collect it, and then he began to collect child porn online. And then he misbehaved with, I think, just groped, but the record isn't entirely clear, his 12-year-old stepdaughter, who was upset, told her mother. Mother confronted her husband. Uh, The guy ended up pleading guilty to the lowest level of child sex abuse in Virginia. Mm -hmm. He had a clean record. He was told, okay, here's this in-house sex treatment facility. You pass their their system, we'll put you on probation and send you back to your family. He wanted to pass, which makes sense because pedophiles do not do well in prison. Mm -hmm. Nobody likes them. Life is miserable in prison in general, but particularly, I think, if you're a pedophile. So 
he wants to pass, he says, but he flunks terribly. And by the end, he's propositioning animal, mineral, vegetable, anybody and anything. They say, you failed on Wednesday. You go to court. You'll be sentenced to prison. On Tuesday, he complains about a blinding headache. They think he's malingering. Then he starts peeing on himself. Again, they think he's faking it because he doesn't want to go to prison. Mm -hmm. Then he shows difficulty writing and he gets dysgraphia. He, he can't write and draw things. And they decide, you know, they still think he's faking, but we might as well take him to the ER to see. They found a tumor in his left orbital region that was the size of a chicken's egg. It was actually not a brain tumor. It was a blood vessel tumor, a mangioma, but it was pressing into the left prefrontal lobe. They took it out. He said, you know, all those impulses have gone away. Mm -hmm. He went back through the 12-step program, the in-house sex program, passed with flying colors, was put on probation. Ten months later, he tells his probation officer, I'm getting those impulses again. Probation officer does not send him back to the judge. He sends him back to the ER. Tumor had regrown. They take it out a second time. He says no impulses. And for the two or three years for which there was follow-up, no arrests. Mm -hmm. Was he a pedophile? Was his tumor a pedophile? What's the right punishment? Death sentence for the tumor? They tried that. It didn't take the first time. On the other hand, he didn't molest his stepdaughter in broad daylight in public. He had enough discretion to wait till kind of a private time. He had mm -hmm. some control. Yeah. By the very end, he had no control. But earlier, at the time of the crime, how much control did he have? How can we know? So I think neuroscience will produce a few more examples of cases like the pedophile tumor. I don't think it'll produce a lot. Yeah. Ultimately, I don't think neuroscience is likely to tell us very much of use in individual responsibility cases, occasionally but rarely. But it's already done something, although I think not necessarily appropriately, on juvenile responsibility. People can no longer be sentenced to death in the United States for crimes they committed while they were a juvenile. And the Supreme Court said that's cruel and unusual punishment because we know juveniles aren't as responsible. And one of the things they cited, at least in their second case on this, was neuroscience evidence about myelination. Mm -hmm. So it's making, it made some difference. Now, the reason I'm not sure I think that's appropriate is you don't actually need brain scans to know that teenagers are different from <laughs> yeah. adults. Well, this happens yeah. with neuroscience a lot. The neuroscience of people are altruistic sometimes. Right, well, right. Yeah. You know, but, but it's more impressive if a guy with a white coat or a woman with a white coat says it while showing pictures of orange and purple brains. Right. Yeah. But for the case with the uh, pedophile tumor and more so the case from Italy where they used MRI to show that this woman had what they called abnormalities in a part of the brain that is involved in decision-making and another part of the brain that's involved in aggression, arguing that, that she was psychopathic or it was a mental illness that made her less culpable. Yeah. But sort of by definition, somebody who commits a violent crime is not normal. They're abnormal, right? So how do you differentiate between, okay, well, this person Point is here. abnormal because we can, you know, hand wave, you see it on the thing, and so they're not responsible. But this other person who committed the same crime, they're just a criminal. I wonder whether how much of it is about whether punishment is, or, or legal ramifications are about responsibility, and how much is it about prevention? I think. Well, so one of the reasons that neuroscience is not going to make the criminal justice system dry up and blow away is it's about a lot of things. Mm -hmm. It's about moral responsibility, but it's also about deterrence, both deterring the particular convict and deterring others, general deterrence. It's about incapacitation, putting them in prison where the only people they can hurt are other prisoners and the occasional guard. And it's even sometimes kind of a little bit about rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. And so those issues don't go away. 
whether or not there was free will involved. I do think the Italian example is a good one. Yeah, there are people, these lesions are consistent with this kind of abnormal behavior. Mm -hmm. And the lawyer on cross-examination should say to the expert, so have you ever seen people with lesions like this who didn't kill their sister? Uh, yes. Have you ever seen brain scans of people who killed their sister who didn't have these lesions? Yes. So is there anything you can tell me about why these uniquely seem to be tied to this? And the answer is almost always going to be no. Yeah. I mean, there may be some exceptions. The fr uh, orbital frontal dementia has a certain syndrome about loss of, of emotion, loss of regulatory control. Mm -hmm. And that's something you can see pretty handily on an MRI. But even there, different people's symptoms will be somewhat different. Some mm -hmm. people will take their clothes off in the street. Some people will curse. Some people, people are disinhibited, but they seem to get disinhibited, not necessarily all in the same way. So I think there are a number of problems, one being the deep problem that our brains always made us do things. The other being the problem that there are very few neuroimaging signals that are uniquely associated with a particular set of behaviors, and not all that many that are powerfully associated with those behaviors. Ultimately, it seems to me that the neuroimaging may be useful to confirm as additional evidence about the behavior, but the behavioral evidence will be first. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, ultimately, there are two different things going on here. One is competence. So you can't be tried if you're not competent to stand trial. You need to be to know what's going on and to be able to help your lawyer. Uh -huh. And if you can't, you're just held forever pending trial. Competency, I think, neuroimaging might be able to help more on in terms of figuring out whether somebody's malingering, pretending to be incompetent or not. Responsibility, responsibility isn't really a scientific concept. It's this legal concept based on fairness. We don't think it's mm -hmm. fair to try to hold a four-year-old criminally responsible mm -hmm. or somebody who is completely delusional if it's not their fault, they're delusional if they didn't get that way by drinking too much or voluntarily taking drugs responsible. And that's a moral standard that I don't think the science is ever going to be able to define for us and one that is likely to shift over time and from culture to culture. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we should take just a little break and right. do something fun. Yeah, um, open got... the next beer. Yeah. We could. Open so, the next beer, yeah. Right. I think so, that would be a fantastic idea. Think it's time for our game? Yeah. I think our so. favorite game. So we're going to take a quick break and pop open our second beer. Beautiful. Nice it's a beautiful sound. <laughs> there you go. So, Hank, my favorite game, there, there are three titles of articles, two of which are made up and one is Thank not. You. And there'll be three rounds of this. Wait, wait. Don't tell me. <laughs> it's called, we, we call this game Not My Field. Not My Field. <laughs> and so it's your job to choose the correct title in each round. And if you get two, then you get to enjoy your second beer. No, I'm kidding. You get to enjoy it anyway. Um, I don't get the but, guy to record my answering machine. <laughs> <laughs> Nick will call you. Yeah, right. So, um, yeah, so it'll be three rounds, and I think Erica is going to start it off. All right. So first round. This is a category of food stuff. So your first option is tasting the rainbow, evidence of effects of synesthesia and Skittles color preference. Option two, yogurt or applesauce, which produces more stomach gurgling. Or option C, Relation between saliva flow and flavor release from chewing gum. So is it meaningful that you gave me options one, two, and C? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and only one of these is true? Only or? one yes, is real. Only yeah. Well, Erica, I'll go with A, a. synesthesia and Skittle preference. All right. I'll read you from the abstract of the correct paper. The object of this study was to investigate whether or not 
parotid saliva flow is a significant determinant uh, you know, that's of gonna flavor be my release second choice. from chewing gum. <laughs> the one about stomach gurgling I knew was wrong because mm. they'd call it bobarygmy, mm. which is the <laughs> medical name for stomach rumble. Is that actually? Yeah, oh. bobarygmy. We should, we should it's, it's a great word, bobarygmy. That is, well, we should, we should make, take notes of that. Yeah, in that's the good. We should say that these are only false to the extent that we made them up. Right. Uh, it could be world. true. It could be true. We yeah. don't know. <laughs> someone, someone needs to say I this. I think somebody should do the, the synesthesia experiment. That is Skittles. That is Skittles. That would be pretty Because they, they taste different, but I wonder they do. if yeah, they would. The red, the red color of like most candies is better. It doesn't yeah. matter what flavor no, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's always red. It's just red. It's, go it's got to be the red. I bet someone has done an experiment taking off the color of the, of the Skittles. And, and then. Yeah, I wonder. That would yeah. be interesting. Okay, so okay, didn't get the first one. Sorry, you got two more two more chances to win our prize, of which we we don't really have one. But um, <laughs> the second the second round is called dangerous hobbies. So, option A: sword swallowing and its side effects. Option B: self-reported exacerbated fear of heights and mild occurrence of PTSD, potential consequences of routine hang gliding. Option C: beehive keepers show higher rates of anaphylaxis. Hmm. Well, the beehive keepers one sounds plausible, um, except they wouldn't still be bee. They probably wouldn't still be beehive keepers <laughs> only um, if they unless they have a passion. And the, the, <laughs> and the first one, what was the the title of the first one? Sword swallowing and its side effects. That's way too short for a scientific article title. I mean, that's just way <laughs> too direct. There's no colon. There's no <laughs> subtitle at all. I'm going to go with B. All right. Hang gliding. Going with hang gliding, exacerbated fear of heights and mild occurrence of Exacerbated PTSD. is a good title word. Exacerbated too. is a good title word. All right. Well, here's here's some from the uh from the the abstract. We had information from 46 sword swallowers. Major conflict. <laughs> <laughs> what journal was this? Was this a peer-reviewed journal? It was BMJ. It was a this BMJ. Was BMJ. In 2006, um, they they I mean published in BMJ. I guess I can't say anything nasty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or no, I think you can. Um, major complications are more likely when the swallower is distracted or swallows multiple or unusual swords, or when previous injury is present. Sword swallowers without healthcare coverage expose themselves to financial as well as physical risk. <laughs> so, do the acknowledgments uh, say if there was any grant funding for this? Oh, we, yeah. don't, we don't know. Just because you want to find out who the grantor was. They're right. obviously an easy touch. Acknowledgments <laughs> to the uh, sword swallowers. So, I'm 0 for 2 so far. Yeah, you had good logic, though. You did pick the uh, the title with the colon. You know, yeah. so. you know the. the uh, one of the most famous lines of the most famous U.S. Supreme Court Justice, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., was the life of the law has been experienced, not logic. <laughs> and in biology, as we know, right. uh, history, time, chance, and history matter a lot more than logic. <laughs> All right. Well, let's see how you do on this third one. So is it option A, feigned injury in infants designed to obtain caregivers' attention? Is it option B, concussion in collegiate football players related to intensity of impact? Or is it option C, dizziness in discus throwers is related to motion sickness generated while spinning? Uh, I'm going to go with the football player's concussion. All right. Because um, I know that people have been studying it has been football studied. impacts with accelerometers in the mouth. Yeah, you, you, oh. are, you are correct. They are doing that. Um, but I'm that gonna... doesn't mean I'm right about the title. <laughs> no, you're correct about your previous statement. Yeah. Um, I'm going to read the first sentence. So, while both discus and hammer throwing involve <laughs> rotating movements resulting in the throw of an object, <laughs> discus throwers sometimes report dizziness, a condition never experienced by hammer throwers. Um, and they go on to say that they That's used... weird. Right, I know. I mean, that's actually not obvious. Do hammer throwers spin? 
when they throw the hammer? Yeah, they throw. Yeah, they yeah, do. Yeah, okay, then I guess that isn't obvious. I didn't. I thought hammer throwers were no from yeah non movement. They say that slow motion reveals that there's a more steady visual bearing for the hammer throwers as opposed to the discus throwers. The hammer is several feet right, so out, it might be. so it's moving more slowly. Right. Okay. Well, I'm 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 sorry that 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 game didn't didn't work out in your favor, but you know we can. I think I should get a prize for being yeah. wrong. Okay. On all three, <laughs> there you is can, beer. You in can front definitely of you. have our prize, which we don't have. So one. actually, <laughs> uh, what are the chances I'd miss three? Eight out of twenty-seven. I'm impressed. Assuming I was random, but I actually think I was better than random. <laughs> yeah. So Craig Heller also missed all three questions. Right. So you're in good company. Right. Good. <laughs> um, so, Hank, in the last few years, you've been really vocal in this rising discussion about something called de-extinction, which is this notion that we could use genetic cloning to recreate animals that have gone extinct. Basically, some sort of Jurassic Park scenario, except without the dinosaurs, because even in the best conditions, DNA doesn't last much longer than 10,000 years. Yeah, you I... actually, arguably 300,000 for a frozen uh, horse in the permafrost. Okay, but we're but, probably but not going to get back to 65 Not 66.5, no. <laughs> it's Pleistocene Park. It's not Jurassic Park. Maybe, <laughs> maybe Anthropocene Park. I think we'll get Pleistocene Park. A Pleistocene Park. I, mean. I, think, I think you guys will actually live to see, probably live to see some Clone. Pleistocene extinctions kind of brought back. It won't yeah. be exactly the same species, hmm. uh, and it might not work at all, but <laughs> I think people will try it, and I suspect some of them will work. Well, who's who's trying to do this? Well, there are a couple of researchers around the world who are working on it, but the main organization involved is a project called Revive and Restore, which is part of the Long Now Foundation. The founder and, and main force behind the Long Now Foundation is a Stanford biology graduate, class of 59. Mm -hmm a piece of charismatic megafauna <laughs> named Stuart Brand. Stuart was the creator of the whole Earth Catalog. Right. Really interesting. I mean, I say charismatic megafauna really quite admiringly. He is a very charismatic, interesting guy. And the Long Now Foundation he founded, along with his uh, also very, very capable and interesting wife, Ryan Phelan, to get people to think about a longer time horizon. So in their correspondence, it's not 2014, it's 02,014. And they're building a 10,000-year clock in the desert in West Texas. Revive and Restore is under that foundation, but it comes out of Stewart's interest. And his interest was particularly captured by the passenger pigeon. Now, people think carrier pigeon, but now the passenger pigeon was a species. There were three to five billion passenger pigeons in North America 200 years ago. Three to five billion? Yes. They were thought to have been the most numerous bird species in the world. Mm. Wow. And they would migrate. The passenger comes from passager, which was French for you know, moving about. Right. They would spend the summers in, in Ontario and Quebec and the winters in Tennessee and Alabama. And they'd migrate in flocks that had millions, if not hundreds of millions of birds. You know, there are reports of them darkening the skies for three days. 200 years ago, three to five billion. A hundred years ago, this September, the last one died. So in less than a hundred years, Americans and Canadians with guns killed them all off. They were unusually large, unusually pretty. They had a very colorful breast. 
And they clumped together in huge quantities and didn't run away from guns the way they should have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so they were the combination really of the telegraph and the railroad did them in. Hunters could figure out where they were through the telegraph and using the railroad, they could get the barrels of dead birds to market. So that got Stewart really interested. And he talked to another piece of charismatic megafauna, a genomicist named George Church mm -hmm. at Harvard. So I think Steve Quake is one of the most creative people I've ever met. George is maybe equally creative but seems a lot weirder. <laughs> Steve seems a lot more normal. And George, uh, among other things, works on DNA synthesis and insertion, targeted insertion of DNA into areas. And George said, hey, we should be able to do this. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon. Get passenger pigeon DNA, sequence it. Get DNA from extant pigeon species, sequence that. Best guess is the one that will be most similar to passenger pigeon is a West Coast pigeon called the bantail pigeon, based on its appearance. Mm -hmm. Although its social behavior is completely different. Do the two sequences, compare them. Look to see where they're the same. Look to see where they're different. Look at the differences and look at the differences you think are important, the ones that are in coding regions, the ones that are in suspected regulatory regions, and then make a cell line of bantail pigeon cells and begin doing targeted editing to take out bantail DNA and put in synthesized passenger pigeon DNA. When you have enough, whatever that means, try to turn cells in that cell line into little pigeons. Breed the pigeons. So you, so you put different synthetic genes into different pigeons, and then you breed them against each other to mix them up further and keep going until you've got something that looks enough like a passenger pigeon. I think the science is conceptually there. It's plausible. Doesn't mean it'll work. I mean, it's who, definitely who, part of this DNA is destiny mindset. Right. And, and mm. But, you know, who knows what the epigenetic factors would be? Who knows mm. what the microbiomes of passenger pigeons were? Mm -hmm. The environment is different, not just because humans have grossly changed eastern North America, but, you know, the atmosphere has 200 parts per billion more CO2 than it did when the last passenger pigeon died. They won't be the same, even if you made an exact genomic replica of the DNA of one of the extinct passenger pigeons. They won't be exactly the same bird because epigenetic markings we don't know about, microbiomes, environment, culture. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't think about pigeon culture, but mama pigeons have to teach their babies something. Those passenger pigeons on migration, I doubt that they were born with the genetic aptitude to know where they should migrate and where they should land. Mm. The babies followed the older pigeons, mm -hmm. and the bantail pigeons don't migrate. Right. So how do you get them to do that? Right. So there would be differences. It's not bringing back the exact species, whatever that means. And the very definition of species itself is deeply problematic. Right. Mm -hmm. But if it works, it's bringing back something that you know, it's, it's at least within the genomic, probably the genomic range of variation of that species. Mm -hmm. Why would you do it? Well, you know, it's forcing the technology, sort of. Mm -hmm. It's giving you a chance to study the passenger pigeon. Although note, because it's not exactly the passenger pigeon, you don't quite know how good your evidence is for what they were like before. Maybe you can use it for environmental restoration. Passenger pigeon's not such a good example, but there are people who think that the mammoths and other large herbivores were in part responsible for the fact that near the glaciers in the retreat of the last ice age, it wasn't tundra like we see now in the Arctic. It was tall grass prairie. And there are people who think that it was the loss of the big grazing herbivores that transformed that ecosystem into a, a simpler one, a different one. So uh, wolves back to Yellowstone, 
or an example of a local extinction that's had, people think, I, I think generally believe, really good ecological effects. But I think yeah, some people might even want to do it from an idea of justice. Mm -hmm. And we murdered them wantonly right. and willfully, and, and now that we can do something about it, we should. It's a little problematic because mm -hmm. I didn't kill any. And uh. does justice apply to a whole species, like right. not bringing back and, the ones we killed? And does it apply to an extinct whole species even more? Uh. So I think the justice argument is viscerally kind of attractive, at least in some cases. Intellectually hard to justify. But for me, the main reason is it would be seriously cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good reason. I mean, uh, so I'm glad to hear you say that because most people roll their eyes. And uh, so I'll often phrase it as it would be awesome. It would be, it would induce a sense of wonder. Uh -huh. It would give us this feeling of awe and wonder, which is a good thing, mm -hmm. which which I think it would. But another word for that is way cool. Yeah, yeah. Way, yeah cool. way cool. And, and, and I think that is a, I mean, why do we go on foreign travel looking for things that are cool? Why mm -hmm. do we do a lot of things that we do? It is a It is a benefit. Is it a big enough benefit to justify the costs then becomes an issue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think of de-extinction as three phases. Phase one is to create a few individuals of this sort of species. Phase two is to turn those into a breeding population. You may never succeed in phase one. If you do, you may never succeed in phase two. There are a lot of wild animals that we can't get to breed in captivity. Phase three would be if you've got a breeding population, which you've studied for several years, then consider environmental release. But I don't think just making it means you put it out into the landscape without any further thought. So phasing it that way, you can avoid some of the ecological risks. Maybe they'll be like wolves in Yellowstone and do a good thing. Maybe they'll be like kudzu in the American Southeast and do a terrible thing. By learning more about them, you may be able to avoid some of that risk. The biggest risk for me may already have happened just by people talking about it. That's the political risk. Because in many ways, the best argument for the Endangered Species Act is extinction is forever. Right. Mm -hmm. But if it's not, I can imagine a senator from, say, Oklahoma saying, well, it's this stupid fish against a project that'll bring us 10,000 jobs. Why don't we just save the fish's DNA? And if it turns out that we think we need it, we can bring it back later. Right. So mm -hmm. that sort of awesome sense of power and how amazing our ability to... Could you know, be perverted could be to perverted. bad ends, yeah. right? Like all technologies, right. exactly. yeah. good things and bad things that could be done with it. So what are some of the ethical concerns and legal concerns about bringing back species? I mean, you're basically playing, to use the term God, you know, you're sort of the puppet master right. of the world. You're bringing species back. You're putting them in this environment or that environment, trying to change the actual earth. So I, I mentioned some of the environmental issues and the political issue. I think two of the other arguments against it, one is the plain God argument, uh -huh. and the other is the animal welfare argument. I take one of those two very seriously. Animal welfare? The animal welfare <laughs> argument. Because if, in fact, you know, you have to, you have a thousand deformed passenger pigeons born or a thousand deformed woolly mammoth calves born, mm -hmm. and you kill a hundred Asian elephant mothers because of an incompatibility, that's not worth it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just as and if the if all the new species have crippled, deformed, terrible lives, that's not worth it. I think that's a legitimate concern. Playing God, I do not like as an argument. Yeah. yeah. I think and and Stuart Brand got there first. He said at one point, we should recognize we are as gods, and we better take it seriously. We better uh -huh. act responsibly. There is no nature left that is unaffected by humans. Uh -huh from the top of the atmosphere to the deepest trench, if only by changing the atmosphere's composition, we've changed everything. But we've done a lot more than that. We can't just say hands off and expect things to go back to normal. Mm -hmm. We have to be gardeners. We have to be managers. And right now, we're gardeners who aren't paying any attention. 
or are paying very little attention. Once you view nature that way, there's some minuses there, but I think you can do some good things if you start thinking about yourself as trying to manage nature. And in fact, it's kind of inevitable. My sister years ago worked as a consultant on regulatory affairs, and she had for hydro plants. Uh, she was working for PG&E that had a hydro plant in Northern California that diverted water from, I think it was the Pitt River, a stretch of the Pitt River. It sent it through a hydro plant and put it back in downstream. So the stretch of the Pitt had a lot less water in it than it previously had had. And that meant the steelhead wouldn't run. The water got too hot, too warm for them. They didn't like it. No trout, no steelhead. Instead, these crummy, big, slow, dumb fish called chum grew there. But bald eagles loved the dumb, stupid fish. <laughs> so it became one of the major bald eagle sites in Northern California. You've got a choice. Do you favor the eagles or do you favor the salmon? Doing nothing doesn't mean anything. There's a change there. Mm -hmm. We're already so deeply involved in the environment and in, in nature and in the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. I'm with Stuart on this. I think we need to own up to the responsibility and start trying to be responsible managers mm -hmm. do you instead think, of ignorant and irresponsible managers. Do you think it's um, a combination of ignorance and fear, for lack of a better word? Somewhat like being daunted by the damage we've done and having to repair it? Maybe. I, I would say, actually, ignorance and self-interest sure. uh -huh. as a bigger issue. We'd rather not repair things that cause us to have to give up things that we like, mm -hmm. like gasoline-powered cars, for example, mm -hmm. because that's inconvenient to us and it's big money to a lot of other people. But, yeah, I, I think fear is part of it. There is this, there's this idea of the precautionary principle, which, in a sense, I like. Don't do things without thinking about them in advance. That's pretty good advice for most things. Not necessarily for everything, but for most things, that's pretty good advice. But if it's taken to don't do anything unless it's absolutely proven to be safe, then it's a recipe for not doing anything because mm -hmm. you can never prove something absolutely safe. And not doing something is doing something. There has been in the environmental movement a kind of unspoken sense that if we just leave things alone, they will go back to some appropriate balance of nature, tree of life, sing kumbaya, and everything will be okay. But I think we've screwed things up too much for that. My analogy, if, you're, if you've ever uh, been running hard and you kind of lose your balance and you're kind of trying desperately to keep from falling down by running even harder and, and weirder, I think that's where we are. We've screwed things up. It's out of balance. If we stop, the runner will fall. Mm -hmm. The runner will not magically resume a nice, steady, stable state. So Now, that doesn't necessarily speak to de-extinction. You can be a good manager of the garden and not to decide to reintroduce a species. For me, it doesn't apart, though, because if you look at at least terrestrial vertebrates today and you look at them 20,000 years ago, we're an incredibly depauperate population, I mean, particularly of the bigger animals. Huge percentages of the species are gone. And the main part of that is climate change, probably not human-triggered in that case, you know, at the end of the Ice Age. But a large part of it is humans. Mm -hmm. we, have, we have denuded the biosphere. Now we've got a chance to put some of that back. And it's not like the Endangered Species Act approach has worked wonderfully. Mm -hmm. Now, we're still losing species every yeah. year. That's not to say we shouldn't have the Endangered Species Act. I support it. It's not to say we shouldn't have conservation biologists fighting hard to save species. I support that. Mm -hmm. But it hasn't worked that well. And even if it works perfectly, it means we end up at a zero-zero tie. Right. This is a chance to actually gain some ground. 
I think it's a really interesting idea. My basic position is not that we should do it, and I don't think government money should be spent on it. I don't think it's that important, but I don't think there are any good reasons to forbid people to do it. Mm -hmm. There are reasons to forbid people to do it without taking precautions about environmental release. There are reasons to forbid people to do it without paying attention to animal welfare. I would, so I would regulate those two things. But other than that, if the American Pigeon Fanciers Society, you know, they all want to kick in 20 bucks a piece to try to bring back the passenger pigeon, fine. Or if Citicorp wants to have the mammoth brought to you by Citicorp. <laughs> now, I, I would rather it didn't say by Citibank on its side, but shave it uh, in. It's, it's the kind of world we live in. Uh, I'd rather see oh, a mammoth God. sponsored by Citibank than not see a mammoth at all. Yeah. yeah, I have to think about that one. Is there any species that you would particularly like to see come back? I got a couple of favorites. One is the saber-toothed cat. Uh -huh. As long as I could see it from a distance, <laughs> a safe distance. A woolly mammoth has a lot of appeal to me. Mm -hmm. So I'm definitely in the charismatic megafauna, uh, naive charismatic megafauna approach. But another one is, is less well-known, the thylacine. So the thylacine is also known as the Tasmanian wolf. It was, it's a marsupial that was wide-ranging over Australia before human contact. There were four or five species. They began to go deeply extinct about ten to 12,000 years ago, which appears to be not when humans arrived, but when dingoes arrived. Mm. Mm. By the time of European settlement, they were either completely extinct on the mainland or almost, but they lived on in Tasmania. And then Europeans settled Tasmania. These things are kind of the wolf analogs, so it is thought they ate sheep. At least the, sheep, the shepherds thought right. that they ate sheep. So the bounty was put on their head. Mm -hmm. And the last one died in a zoo in 1935 or 36. Wow. What's particularly attractive about the thylacine, and I recommend that you and all your listeners do this, go to YouTube and put in thylacine, T-H-Y-L-A-C-I-N-E, and you will find several video clips, video transfers of, of original movies of the last of these thylacines in the zoo at Hobart. I've seen these. Yeah, it looks like a dog. And then you look a little more closely and you go, well, it's got the stripes and, you know, the, really the head is a little different. And it and can open its jaw enormously. enormously. It's and, pretty creepy. And the tail is kind of flat and paddle-like and it only moves, I forget now whether it moves up and down or side by side, side mm -hmm. to side, but it can't move both ways. The more you look at it, the kind more of like a different whale. it is. Huh. And then you say, damn, this thing is gone. I'm seeing it on YouTube. It no longer exists. The idea that maybe you could make it exist again, once you've seen it on video, it's uh, it's pretty attractive. Yeah. yeah. So we'll post those videos on, on our blog yeah, that's a good idea. this episode. There's a species I wouldn't bring back, although <laughs> it is tempting. I've actually got a blog post on our Center for Law and Biosciences blog called On Not De-Extincting Homo Neanderthalensis. I was going to ask you about this. It's really tempting, but I'm against it on two grounds. One is the safety issue, which is an ethics issue. I mean, we don't know how well the babies would come out mm -hmm. or whether the human mother who's carrying this human-like genome would have negative reactions as a result. Maybe you could study this, but I'm not sure with what. I mean, how would you actually ever know whether it was safe for humans unless or until you tried it? Maybe, you know, chimps with a modified chimp genome. But but, but I think the safety issues are, are serious, especially the safety of the baby. The mm -hmm. mother can volunteer or not. 
but the baby doesn't have a choice. Right. But the bigger safety issue, the bigger issue is also a safety issue, but it's a bigger issue. I have no confidence that our society would treat Neanderthals well. No. Yeah. No. I mean, we didn't we're, we're able, well, <laughs> well, it's not entirely clear, but probably not. But you don't have to go back 30,000 years. I mean, you look at all the ways in which we label others as different and proceed to enslave, beat, kill, etc. Parts of the world are getting better at that than they used to be, although I don't think any part is perfect. And I think Neanderthals, I would, you know, would we let them vote? Would we make them go to school? Would we let them drive cars? Those would all be questions we'd have to answer. My guess is we probably should say yes to all that. We don't really know. We know their brain, their skull capacity was larger than ours by a non-trivial amount, 5 to 10%. Mm -hmm. There's some thought that it was shaped a little differently from the skull shape, that the brain had a little different development. Mm -hmm. And part of the temptation here is... Because we want to know. We want to know. Right. And we're never going to find a nicely preserved Neanderthal brain. It's tempting. I think we should resist this temptation. I'm not confident we will. The one that's really tempting, though, even more so, is the Denisovans. You know about Denisovans? Are these the hobbits? No. The hobbits would be even cooler. (laughs) But we don't have any hobbit DNA, Uh and we may never get it because those bones were very waterlogged, Mm -hmm. which is bad for DNA preservation. And it was a very hot, humid island they were found on. Uh, There is a cave in the Altai Mountains in Russia Called in a place called Denisova. It was found by a hermit named Dennis. And it was discovered to have been inhabited by humans for a long time. And there were lots of both Homo sapien and Homo, Homo neanderthalensis remains and artifacts in this cave. And there were also a couple of molars and a finger bone. And I think the molars looked a little odd, which is why somebody decided to sequence them. So Santi Pabo, the world's most famous and, and first best ancient DNA guy, uh, sequenced it and discovered that their whole genome sequence was not the same as ours, was not the same as the Neanderthals, and was kind of equidistant from both of us. Mm -hmm. It's about as different from Neanderthal as we are from Neanderthal and as it is from us. And all we know about these guys is they were around about 30,000 years ago, and we've got two molars and a finger bone. Mm -hmm. We probably have some artifacts they made. But we have no way of knowing which artifacts right. they made versus which artifacts the Neanderthals and the humans made. So that would be kind of interesting because you know, maybe we'll discover more Denisovan. It is true there are still some Denisovan genes around, particularly in Melanesia and hmm. I think the Pacific Islands. Those people seem to be 1% or 2% Denisovan, just as most non-Sub-Saharan African humans are about 2 to 3% Neanderthal. So they say it's not entirely clear how true that is. But right. um but we don't know anything about them. It would be tempting to try to recreate them. But again, for the same sort of reasons, I think it would be a mistake, mm-hmm. at least mm-hmm. until we become a much better species. Right. And yeah, as with all these, I mean, all of these things have this sort of common element of can we, should we, will we do it anyway? I, I think, yeah, it, these are all. You know, it, it's sort of like I don't drink cocktails because I know they're more dangerous for me than <laughs> beer and wine. <laughs> right. Making Neanderthals nice would be more dangerous than making passenger pigeons. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, I think that we really ought to ought to wrap up. Um, if I would love if you if you have a, a quick pitch for the spins program, I think that would be 
something sure. that people might be really interested in learning a little bit about? Well, I'm really excited about this new SPINS program. Uh, for one thing, I love the acronym. I love yeah. something about neuroscience that both gets the idea of spin from MRI, right. mm -hmm. but also on the social side, so much of neuroscience in society is spin <laughs> right. of one sort or another. <laughs> so that's why we have two spins. We have the MRI spin and we have the social spin. Uh, this is funded by the Stanford Neuroscience Institute, and its goal, it, we have three years of funding, our goal is to do one working group process leading to a white paper and various publications on a real policy issue in each of the next three years. Something where neuroscience and society interact in a way that is highly likely to happen and quite concrete. So we probably won't do a, a program on how will neuroscience affect our ideas of free will and what will be the consequences for the court system. But something like, you know, what kind of evidence would you need in order to be willing to admit uh, neuroimaging into a trial in terms of whether the claimant was feeling pain or not. Mm. Or various uh, computer programs that claim to improve your ability to train your brain mm -hmm. to get smarter mm -hmm. or to retain memories better. Should there be a regulatory structure for those? Should there be a way to measure how well they work? How right. well do the current ones work? Things like that. So yeah. real, near-term, concrete, realistic questions that we can bring experts at both at Stanford and elsewhere together to try to propose some some paths forward. Mm -hmm. That's what SPINS is about. We also hope to put on you know, a variety of talks and other events around campus. So look for us. We don't have a website up yet, but we will do we will soon and S P I N S. Sounds fascinating. Fantastic. Yeah. We really thank you for being here today has been a really interesting conversation. Well, so. I thank you for the IPA. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the conversation. The IPA first, but the conversation was good too. What's important? It was a hoppy conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you all for listening. Come have a drink with us next week when our guest will be Zoya Farzampour, a graduate student in John Huguenot's lab here at Stanford. Brains of Bourbon is a production of Neurite West and KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. This episode was produced by Erica Senor, Nick Weiler, Julia Turan, and myself. You can find all of the past episodes of Brains and Bourbon, as well as our podcast, NeuroTalk, and read articles about everything you ever want to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. <laughs>